Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. As Jesus moves ever closer to our Jerusalem and the passion that awaits there. Well, that is what's coming in the next few chapters. The triumphal entry of Christ into the holy city, where just a few days later he would accomplish this thing called salvation. That has been a consistent theme in Christ's teaching over these past few weeks in particular. Holding up a weak and powerless infant up on the one hand and a man of great wealth on the other to help us understand that those who come with the trust and humility of a child to receive the kingdom of God will have no problem gaining access. While those who come impressed by their own abilities will find entrance most impossible indeed. And that's the real danger of pride, friends. It has a way of convincing me that since I've done everything else for myself, I can do this salvation thing on my own too. It's a huge struggle in the 21st century church. As men and women of faith continue to rely on their performance for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Even though everything we read, everything we teach, everything we talk about points to man's inability to stand in the presence of God. Still we regurgitate the words of the rich man, asking, what good thing shall I do that I might obtain eternal life? Jesus said, salvation can't be bought by man. It can't be earned by man. It can't be achieved by man's good works. No, salvation isn't even the cards for people to do. Salvation can only be accomplished by God. That's what Jesus has been teaching the disciples as they continue their journey toward the capital city. That salvation is totally and completely God's work. And let there be no mistake about that in this place then. Salvation belongs to our God who authored it before the foundations of this world and accomplished it through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah? I'll turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 20 and follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 17. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. 
And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called to them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. May God bless the reading of his word. Several years ago, I had the privilege of teaching the third through sixth grade class on Wednesday nights. There's a role filled with unique challenges and tremendous opportunities. I remember one week in particular where we welcomed several new students all at once and answered some very interesting questions. Holding a Bible in his hands for the first time, one of those sixth graders read from Romans chapter 8, verse 5. He said, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Looking up from the page in wonder, he says, who is Christ? And why did he have to die? Now, that's a really Really good question. And not just for our young people, but for many of us adults who still struggle to understand the nature of this Christ or Christ. In fact, as we will see this morning, even the disciples who followed Jesus for three years are still trying to figure him out, wondering who he really is, and finding it difficult to understand the significance of his death. As we join Jesus in his decisive march toward that harrowing fate, let's consider three key aspects of his identity that help us appreciate who he is and why he had to die. First, we learn that Christ is the suffering Messiah. Well, take a look back at verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said this. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. 
Now, of course, this was not the first time that we have heard Jesus describe his upcoming passion. But it has never been nearly this specific. With details now about his deliverance to the Roman authorities, his humiliation by the crowds, his being mocked, tortured, and killed. Have to imagine that as Jesus uttered these words, he had Isaiah's prophecy in mind, which tells us that the Christ would be smitten of God and afflicted, pierced through for our transgressions. He'd be crushed for our iniquities, and that the chastening for our well being would fall upon him. And by his scourging, We are healed. The Jewish people did not associate this portrayal with their hopes of the Messiah. And that's why it's been so difficult a thing for the disciples to hear. And it's why Jesus felt the need to continually repeat it. Back in chapter 16, Peter looked at Jesus and said, as the lead voice of the apostolic choir, certainly you are The Christ. But they had no idea what kind of Christ he would be. It turns out they wanted Messiah, the ruling king. Not Messiah, the suffering servant. And it blinded them to the reality that would await. In fact, even after this second prediction... Even after this most detailed account. Even after they find themselves en route to the place of that crucifixion. Luke tells us the disciples still lacked understanding. Unable to see the truth. And that's not just a struggle for the first century apostles. The overwhelming majority of people are still blind to it today. How can this man save others when he could not even save himself? It doesn't make any sense. No, I suppose not. Christ on a cross is absolute foolishness. To those who are perishing. But it is the very means of salvation. For those who believe. Because in order to save men. From the penalty of sin. Which is death. Jesus had to pay the penalty of death. Himself. There's no other way. And so Jesus set his face like flint, prepared, willing, able, and determined to enter Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the religious establishment, be handed over to the Gentiles, face the mockery of the crowd, be condemned as a blasphemer, and beaten like a slave. Also, you and you And you and me 
could know this thing called salvation. I'll tell you, friends, I was not there to see it firsthand, but there is nothing that has ever been more real in my entire life. So what about you? Are you still waiting around for another version of the Christ? Are you still trying to be Christ yourself? If that is the case, let me assure you, no one else can do for you what he has already done. And no one else ever will suffer on your behalf, die in your place so you can have peace with God. Are you there? As Jesus describes the fate that awaits in Jerusalem, we recognize that he is Christ, the suffering Messiah. But not only that, We also realize that Christ is the Son of God. Take a look back at verse 20. Immediately after detailing his death and resurrection, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. He said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom... These two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, interestingly enough, when Christ first told his disciples about his death and resurrection, well, that too was followed by a well-intentioned but altogether inappropriate response by a member of the group. Back in chapter 16, as Jesus began to point out that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed, Peter out and out rebuked him for even suggesting that such things must take place. Well, this time it's the sons of thunder and their mom who speak in ignorance. Yeah, boy, it sounds like that crucifixion thing that you're going to undergo, yeah, that's pretty serious. But let's get back to what's really important here. You need to give my boys a place of prominence when you depart. One should be seated on your right, the other on your left. Man, that is a little presumptuous. That's a lot presumptuous. But you know, we're often guilty of the same thing ourselves. Leveraging our relationship with Jesus 
to get things from him rather than give glory to him. Many of us approach the Lord with the same selfishness as James and John, insisting that the Lord do whatever we want, as they are quoted as saying in Mark's parallel account. Do whatever we want, Lord, in a way that pleases us. Yeah, while we're at it, why don't we just call Aladdin and ask for one of his wishes, huh? (laughs) He's not a genie. And we ought not treat him that way. And yet that is exactly how these apostles and their mother come on approach. About two seconds after Jesus tells them he's going to asphyxiate on a Roman cross. Is his life not enough for you? Now, evidently not. They wanted more. More glory, more power, more prominence and prestige. Give us the seats of honor at your left and right hand that we might reign with you in the kingdom that you have been describing. Now keep in mind, Jesus already promised them a hundredfold what they had given up on earth to follow him. He's already promised that each of these apostles would one day sit upon one of the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And still they're not satisfied? Well, their insistence on getting more reveals delusions, I'm afraid, in all of us. That by and large, we have a superficial understanding of what it means to follow Christ. That by and large, we have a flawed assessment of the riches that we've already been granted. That by and large, we have an inflated opinion about our own importance. And that by and large, we have a misunderstanding about that which truly pleases God. Still, after all of that, (laughs) Jesus does not rebuke them for having such lofty ambitions. So much as for misconstruing what it takes to achieve them. It says, you want to sit in the seat of power? And you don't even know what you're asking. Because somewhere along the line, you got the wrong impression about how men are exalted in this kingdom of mine. It's not by puffing out your chest, telling everyone how great you are, Carrying on to get attention or bribing your way to the top. Glory in the kingdom comes only in the wake of persecution, suffering, and the loss of your life. She says, you want a special seat? You need to drink the cup that I'm about to drink. That is to say, you must identify with Christ in his sufferings. 
drinking the cup represents the sharing of his fate. To join in the same journey or experience the same lot. Oftentimes in scripture, the cup is used as a picture of wrath and judgment that God would pour forth on sin. That's what Jesus agonized about in the prayer of Gethsemane. When he said, Habba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, if at all possible. I would prefer not to take this path, not to have all the sin of the world poured out on my shoulders. And yet, if that's what it is, then not my will, but yours be done. Friends, this is Christ, the Son. Who might have desired an easier way in the flesh, but submitted fully to his Father in the Spirit. Yeah, I'm going to drink this cup, boys. Not because it's fun for me or because it gives me a reward, but because my Father prescribed it this way. And my Father always knows best. With that, Jesus turned to James and John as he would turn this day to all of us and asks them, will you suffer this same way for me? That is the question. It's one that James and John responded to with this resounding, yes. Yes, we are willing and we are able. Of course, that does not mean that they would be crucified necessarily or that they would have the weight of sin on their shoulders. It means they must be willing to suffer for the kingdom too. And even though they did not fully appreciate how true their answer would become, In the years that followed, Jesus knew what awaited them. Just as he knows and numbers all of our days as well. And so he tells them, even though your answer was a bit ill-informed, you are right. Nonetheless, just as I will be mocked, so will you be mocked. Just as I will be persecuted, so you will be persecuted. Just as I will be cast down upon, beaten, spit at, and put to death, so too will you. And sure enough, as we are told in Acts chapter 12, this James was the first apostle martyred for his faith. And John's attempted execution and exile were not far behind him. They came in search of honor and glory. And Jesus said, before a crown of splendor will be given, a cup of suffering must be endured. And that remains true for every genuine believer still today. 
But as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, only if we suffer with him, may we be glorified with him. Only if we die with him, will we live with him. Only if we endure, will we reign. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. For to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, Peter writes, so shall you rejoice at the revelation of his glory. Christ the Son submitted to his Father when he drank that cup, just as he submitted to his Father in assigning seats for his followers. The cup that I drink, you shall drink, he told James and John. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. See, Jesus understood these things were not his to hand out as he pleased. In these matters, Christ subordinated himself to the Father. Not because he is less God, because he has a different role. His to carry out the will of the Father, never to assert a will of his own. Do you see? As Jesus interacts with the disciples, we get a much clearer picture of who he is. We realize Christ is the suffering Messiah. Christ is the Son of God, and Christ is the servant of many. Take a look back at verse 24. As word got back to the group about the conversation just had with James and John, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now here, Jesus touches a tender spot in these apostles. Ten of them are upset with the other two. Either because they felt betrayed by James and John, or because the others wished they had thought to ask for a place of prominence themselves. Either way, we see this continual pull on the unity of the group under the guise of greatness. You remember back in chapter 18, how they came to Jesus and said, which one of us is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, we see that same thing here. Followers of Christ fighting for first chair. I want to sit at his right hand. No, I want to. I deserve it, Jesus. Pick me. It's extremely selfish. It's extremely 
arrogant. And it's extremely common. In the same way, the disciples battled for power and control in the middle part of the first century. So have many members of the modern church. But we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be called out. We're supposed to be set apart from the ways of the world. Which tell us to trample over anyone who gets in your way so you can be on top. The disciples listening to Jesus' teaching would have been quite familiar with that kind of rule. Being subject all their lives to the Tetrarch, to the governor, and to the king. Those are likely the Gentiles to whom Jesus was referring here. Men who lorded their authority over their people. But Christ says in verse 26, it ought not be that way among you. For in my kingdom, whoever wishes to be great must be a servant. Whoever wishes to be first must be a slave. Don't you see, friends? Instead of fighting with one another to see who will lead we're supposed to serve one another as our act of leadership. That's the new ethic of Christ. One he demonstrated for us by serving himself. Of course, we see that in the way that he reached out to the brokenhearted. The way he fed the hungry crowd. The way he responded to their cries for mercy. The way he washed the disciples' feet. We see that service in all those things. But even more, Jesus showed himself as the servant by giving his own life. Even we have never thought of his sacrifice in that way. Inherently, we know the willingness to lay down one's life for another is the greatest expression of service selflessness, and courage that we could ever show. And that's where the question comes from. One that I get asked all the time. Have you ever served? Now, the man who asked me that just the other day wasn't wondering if I've ever bust tables, if I've ever shined shoes, if I've ever served meals at the homeless shelter. No, the question about serving is about enrollment in the military. Wondering if I ever signed up to risk my life for the sake of another. Because that's the ultimate act of service. To be willing even to die to keep another from harm. Well, that is precisely what Christ did. He gave himself to purchase our freedom from the just wrath of God. I mean, this is the very heartbeat of Matthew's gospel. The wonderful 
exchange. Or as John Piper put it, the reason Christianity is such good news. That the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Justice and righteousness demanded that ransom. Grace and love hath provided it in the person of Jesus Christ, who being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Are you there? The boy in my class wanted to know, who is this Christ? Well, he is the suffering Messiah, the Son of God, the servant of many. And if you have not recognized these realities as of yet in your life, it's time you opened your eyes to the truth about Jesus. Following this tremendous insight into Christ's identity, Matthew goes on to tell us about an encounter that Jesus had with two blind men outside Jericho. Seems rather odd that our gospel writer would include yet another miracle story after how many others we've already seen. But it is presented to us in verse 29 just the same. That as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. And immediately they regained their sight and followed him. So why did Matthew include this story in the middle of his discipleship discourse? And more importantly, why did he place it right here? It's not just because it was the next thing that happened chronologically. It's because even after hearing the clearly stated truth about the death and resurrection of Jesus, many of us remain blind to it ourselves. We don't see Christ for who he is. We don't look upon his sacrifice. We don't gaze in awe of his work. We're blind to the truth of Christ Jesus. And if we remain in that condition, we will forever stumble in the dark. Like these beggars on the streets 
outside Jericho. They said, I don't want to be blind anymore. I don't want to live without a proper view of the Messiah. Lord, have mercy on us. For we have been walking around in the shadows all this time. Lord, have mercy on us and help us to see. And some of us are so busy seeking power, prominence, and prestige like James and John. We're missing the one thing we truly need. To have our eyes opened and see Christ as he is. The suffering Messiah. The Son of God. And the servant of many. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us perceive him in that light. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come and gather. Lord, an opportunity that many of us have enjoyed all these many years, but perhaps some without taking the blinders off and seeing your son Jesus as he is. I pray, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, remove the veil from our eyes and our minds and our hearts that we might see him in his suffering. That we might know him in his death we might be raised with him in his resurrection. Because, Lord, that's the only way it works. Thank you for this new view. It allows us with spiritual eyes to perceive the greatness and glory of the Son. May he continue to be exalted in our midst as we remember his work now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 